today's episode of the SSPX podcast, we'll continue our apologetic series by looking at the many prophecies about our Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. First, Father McPherson will help us understand what a prophecy is and how it's different than just a simple prediction. Then we'll see how throughout the Old Testament, these prophecies get clearer and clearer about who our Lord would be. Yet, even still, by the time of the Incarnation, there was still a lot of confusion. Why didn't people at the time understand who our Lord was? You can find notes to all of these episodes at sspxpodcast.com apologetics, as well as all of our previous episodes. There as well, you can find a link to help support this project. This is free to listen to, as well as all of the resources we're posting, but if you can help with a one-time or a small monthly recurring donation, you'll be making sure that we can continue this work of producing good Catholic content on a regular basis. Now, let's join Father Robert McPherson for episode number 10 of our apologetic series. Welcome back to our next episode of the SSPX podcast and the apologetic series and welcoming for the first time on any of our podcasts, Father Robert McPherson. Father, it's been a long time since I've seen you in person back in St. Mary's days, maybe 20, 15 years ago. It's been a while. How are you? It has been. Uh, I'm, I'm doing well. Thank you very much. It's certainly an, an honor to to be here and to be back in the States after many years abroad. So, yeah, absolutely. Could, for those who aren't familiar with who you are, could you give us kind of a quick rundown of, of who you are and, and what you've been up to? Sure. So I was ordained in O2 uh, in Winona. I went through the seminary there. And uh, after that, I've had a few different assignments. So first I was stationed in England, and then I was sent back to teach at the seminary in Winona. And then I spent a few years uh, at St. Mary's, so that was uh, nice to to go back and uh, work as a as a priest in the apostolate that I'd actually profited from my myself growing up. Uh, and then I was sent overseas, and first to the the Philippines, which was uh, certainly enjoyable. It was certainly, uh, I think, uh, an eye-opener to to me to see this different aspect of the apostolate. Uh, the heat was a bit hard on me. Um, and then so uh, after a brief stint there, I went to New Zealand for about five years and then to Australia to the seminary there for four years. And then uh, about a year and a half ago, I was reassigned to the, the seminary, now moved here to Dillwyn. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas Seminary, where I, I'm teaching uh, with with the others. So, fantastic! Uh, I I won't even start to hazard a guess as to how many frequent flyer miles you've racked up throughout your priesthood. Oh but yeah, there, there's been a few. That's right, <laughs> but with different airlines, <laughs> so you only get to a certain amount, and then it's uh, uh, <laughs> you lose it. Yeah, there's one argument for one world government right there. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, Father, it's, it's great to have you and, and uh, great to have you back stateside as well. Um, your assignment today or your, your discussion today is about prophecies. We've, we've been talking about the Bible with Father Ruder the last couple episodes, talking about can we trust the Bible? Is it true? We've been talking about the Old Testament a little bit, and we're going to go into some specifics in the Old Testament in this episode today, Father, uh, and talk about prophecies. So broadly, what are we going to be talking about today? Uh, well, we'll uh, talk about the the messianic prophecies and the the singular. I think first we'll have to look at what we expect from a prophecy, the the nature of a prophecy, what would constitute a 
true and reliable one as opposed to uh, ingenious guesses, uh, speculation based upon the, uh, the spirit of the day, and then see uh, in what fashion the messianic prophecies, the prophecies uh, about the coming of our Lord, satisfy those criterion. And yes, how we can say or, or what we can say about them is, are they really apologetically valuable? Do they demonstrate to us uh, that our Lord Jesus Christ really is the one that was foretold? Or is it possible that there is some other way to fulfill those those prophecies? Uh, and we'll see that no, they they couldn't be it, uh, even though there were attempts. And because it is such a singular way in which they are are met, that they are satisfied, this is really a demonstrable proof that our Lord Jesus Christ is the one promised. So really, the the only one who who affects uh, uh, history even before he's born. Um, yeah. And through that, then so, we can demonstrate the truth of the uh, his, his mission and the Catholic religion as a whole. Great. So like we always like to do when, whenever we start an apologetics episode is define our terms so that we're on the same page knowing what we're talking about. So before we start talking about what the prophecies are or what their importance is, what is a prophecy? Is it someone just telling the future? What is it? Uh, well, first we'll we'll get to actually what that uh, that is. It's this infallible prediction of a future contingent um, event. Uh, but before we actually get to that definition, perhaps the real definition, as we would call it, um, we can look at the uh, the its use in scripture. So it's its nominal definition where it comes from, and it comes from the, the Greek word uh, prophenai, which means to speak for another. And that is why even if someone didn't foretell a future event, we still speak of them as, as prophets because they are, in the case of the, um, the biblical prophets, speaking on behalf of God. So they are proclaiming the words of God to men. And if uh, after the fact you might say the most clear evidence that these are the words of God uh, are the fact that no one else could have known them. They are speaking of future events. So now we know they are the words of God. It is in fact uh, used in scripture uh, more widely. So anyone who speaks under the impulse, under the divine impulse, uh, whether they are foretelling the future whether they are simply praising God, um, this would be considered uh, prophecy. But we certainly, with the Messianic prophecies, um, we are looking at it as it's in its more um, evolved meaning, in its more uh, definite meaning, and that is an infallible uh, prediction of future uh, contingent things, of a future contingent thing, which uh, is only knowable by a supernatural light, um, and not only, and it's knowable by that supernatural light, and it is foreseen with certainty. So it's not a guess; it's not hazarding as you know a, uh, a speculation of what might be or a probability. It is known with certainty, and it's known by supernatural light. 
So this is not like, like you said, this is not someone who's just really good at figuring out, well, this person, it looks sad. So therefore there must be some tragic event that happened beforehand. You know, that's just kind of using logic. This is something that is only knowable through supernatural means. It, is it sort of like a miracle in that sense, or is it different? It would be uh, a miracle in the wide sense because um, miracles, as St. Thomas would explain them, uh, deal with uh, things evident to the senses. So works evident to the senses that can only be done by, by God. And although the prophecy is um, uh, indirectly known to the senses because it has to be spoken to be known, it is primarily in the intellect. It is the knowledge, and it is knowledge with certainty that is then, yes, conveyed to uh, to others. But if you like, the, the the gift of prophecy is in that knowledge itself. And so, for example, one might um, look at the uh, Joseph, uh, the patriarch, when he interprets the the dreams of. Uh, of the the two people in the prison with him or the servants of, of Pharaoh you have this external thing of those that see the visions but they receive these visions but they and and from God because they really had a, a divine meaning but they are not the prophets the the prophet is though is he that knows with certainty what that means through this divine light and whether he uh, Again, and it's somehow secondary to that, that he then conveys that uh, to to another. Um, but for a miracle, that is the the essence of it, that it's, it is something visible to the senses. Are the prophecies, are they usually easy to understand? I mean, I, I guess I kind of already know the answer. The answer is kind of no. Um, we usually need to kind of put some things together, but they're, they're not generally expressed in a, in a really precise, easy to understand way at first glance, right? Right. And I think that is actually a, a very striking point, Andrew, um, because when we, we would think of, uh, as I said, that we're not simply hazarding guesses. It's not about trying to test the waters about, oh, this person looks sad. Maybe I'll say that they broke up with a friend or, or something like that. So um, we do have that question. Well, if the messianic prophecies are somehow couched in a certain obscurity, well, then how can we say that they are true predictions of the, uh, the future? And that is first i would say there's a difference between something being obscure and it's being uh equivocal so that if you have uh the 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 prophecy of uh isaiah uh, a virgin shall conceive and um uh, shall bear uh, bear a son um there's a certain obscurity there will um, she, okay, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Will she remain a, a virgin? Will she have children after? There's certain things that are not encompassed in that, that prophecy. Mm -hmm. But what it does exclude is uh, a different interpretation of virgin that will actually um, know it's 
uh, or that a, a son could some be uh, simply uh, I don't know metaphorical, and it's a, it's a pet, you know, sure. because we speak of pets now as as our children uh, in this modern <laughs> uh, uh, this, this modern outlook. So to or when I think it was one of the Sibyls uh, when I approached by a king to predict the the outcome of the war said well a great king will be overthrown and he assumes it means the opponent and it turns out to be himself so that kind of ambivalent equivocal language that is something different than it simply being incomplete it it meaning this to the extent that I I can see uh, but I can't see beyond that and also um The fact is that if it is a uh, a future event, and often as it was couched in figures and types, it's not necessary that the uh, the prophet, who is an instrument, knows it to the degree that the Holy Ghost does. So, if we understand that God has a certain thing that He He can intend to reveal in a certain way. There is nothing that says that there is not a a limitation to what that extent is. And as one author um, explains it, God did intend to expound this and divulge these truths over time. So even as he reveals one thing that is incomplete and limited, he plans at a different time to reveal something else, which will then add on to that and the puzzle the piece of the puzzle will come into place uh, but when it is revealed and so that going back to the expression of this author he says it is much like the stars in the sky they give a light you know that that light is 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 there but the relation to the other light is not so clear it might be you know how distant that star is from another star it's not yet known you simply see the light there you know it has its its place in the sky um but more is is to to come and then if i could just follow up one more thing so there's this the difference between the 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 limitation and the ambivalence or the equivocation and another hugely important aspect to to understand is the um it's tied to the purpose i think the very nature of what's revealed is tied to the the reason that God reveals it. Uh, with the Old Testament prophecies, for the Jews, it was to encourage them. It was to fill them with hope. It was to get them to, to persevere through their trials, to preserve the faith um, in very difficult circumstances. And it was not to satisfy an idle curiosity. It was not as... You, know, you might find someone going to a, a fortune teller or reading the horoscope trying to determine what to do um, that day in order to play the system. In fact, that would be a very dangerous spirit to cultivate, and we can see a bit more uh, why that is the, the case later. But when we see that the really the, the purpose of God in, in uh, these uh, these prophecies, this this revelation, was really to inspire the uh, the the Jews with hope. It was not necessary 
that they have a clear um, playbook of exactly everything that's entailed from um, from the first moment of the first prophecy. Right. It's 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 on God's time. It's not necessarily He's not going to just give us the playbook. I, I think a lot of us would really like that, but that's not how He works. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, how do we know that a prophecy is a prophecy? What are the uh, what are the kind of component parts of a prophecy so that we can recognize whether one is or one is just some metaphorical speech? There will be uh, first uh, a representation of certain uh, realities. It might be um, through signs, uh, so to the, the senses. It might be by way of imagination, um, or it might simply be just a light infused into the uh, the intellect, and through that, uh, by whatever means this light comes to the intellect, whether it be through the external signs or infused directly, the the prophet will understand two things. He will understand the meaning of that representation, although it might be limited. He will know what it uh, what it means as uh, as such even though he might not realize the full application of that to the the messiah so i um or in to to some um uh other event and the second element is that as i mentioned earlier uh, one is certain that it's revealed by god and so god certainly wants me to uh to uh, convey this message to others or excludes all doubt that this is from the devil or from my own imagination, that it was nothing more than a dream. No, if it was through a dream, this dream is from God, etc. We've already talked about in a previous episode how it is possible that God reveals things to us just through revelation. Um, and so I, I think a skeptic would say... Well, it's not possible that God can give a human the ability to uh, to see future events or to you know proclaim something that could be happening in the future. Uh, but the same sort of reasons that we gave before about is it possible for God to speak to man? These same reasons um, say that prophecies are possible as well, right? Uh, they do. So uh, I think one of the sticking points, uh, you might say, the particular application to prophecy is that well, isn't God simply um, making that educated guess? Uh, mm. But if we understand the nature of God, he is outside of time. He is the uh, not the alpha to the omega, he's the alpha and the omega. His, uh, he possesses a, his complete being um, here and now that embraces all of the created time. So he sees the future as he would see the present. And so for him then to convey that to one of his creatures is, uh, is as easy as it, as it would be to convey a past event to one of uh, uh, his creatures or uh, we to one another. And it brings to mind an, an, uh, an incident that of a, a conversation that I had on a plane once, whereas where I was speaking about, well, God's revelation and uh, to the person and they were uh, discussing it. And we came to the notion of, is it possible to have 
be certain of God's revelation or of the of the true church. And his uh, position was that, well, I think God can, you know, it's not that God can't reveal the truth with certainty, it's that we can never know it with certainty. And we can never really be sure that it's God revealing this kind, this kind of idea. And I think that tends to mask itself under the guise of humility. Well, yes, you know, God can reveal himself and he's trying to reveal himself, but we are too weak to really appreciate it and we can't really know. And so it has this guise of humility. But I think if we just said, well, how about if your if your neighbor comes up to you and and shakes his fist in your face, or if you're uh if if you give your your wife roses or something like that, as well, I, I just don't know what these means. What what is he trying to say by these roses? Or, or what's this guy <laughs> trying to say by shaking his fist in my face? It's evident that if if a creature can convey with certainty what he wants to say, then to to make it uh, you know this argument of humility. Oh, we just can't know what God is trying to say. Yeah. It really is an attack on God. Uh, so God knows the future as He knows the present and past, and He can certainly convey that to us in a way that His creature can understand with certainty. So, following up on that point, then you know, take putting on the skeptic hat for a second here, Father. Then, how do we know? Um, you're saying it's obvious. Great. How is it obvious? How do we how do we discern whether or not something is a prophecy? So there would be the um, the the question first: Did a uh, a positive and definitive prediction take place? So did this this statement actually uh, occur? Is this what was was meant? And then did that event subsequently prove to be true? And if you can. Um, find those two elements, then you can establish the historical truth of the prophecy. Um, where I think a lot of the 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 controversy comes in is uh, regarding the the meaning of the prophecy. So, because if you if you have the clear meaning, you can clearly say yes or no, this happened or it did not happen. So a lot of the the controversy will be what is the meaning of that. And so, for example, uh, the Jews by and large um, do not accept our interpretation of the messianic prophecies. So they say yes, these refer to the Messiah, but you have interpreted them uh, as a Catholic in a wrong way. You should take it more literally. You should take it more spiritually. You should just not take it the way you do. Um, and then you have other uh, examples as, as well of those that the Adventists and their notion of the end of the world and things like this. It, it, uh, the prophecy means something else in their mind. So that is one of the, um, the combats, you might say, that one will have to, uh, to face. And so demonstrating why it's unreasonable or uh, simply not true, how uh, how our opponents interpret the, uh, the message, how they interpret the prophecy. And that can become quite an involved uh, discussion um, dealing with the, the, the text themselves, the language of the text, the, uh, the customs surrounding that. 
Um, yet I think for our purpose, again, with, because that can be something of the, um, the position of the rationalist, the position of the materialist, uh, to take simply one of these texts and to see it in a completely isolated way to say that, well, if it doesn't completely um, explain our Lord in, a, in an isolated way, then it can be simply ignored altogether. And now we'll take a next isolated text and it doesn't see them as pieces of the puzzle that make a coherent whole. And that already is one of the most striking aspects of the of the the truth of the prophecies as how over centuries different men of different cultures of different circumstances of different education they all contribute these pieces to the puzzle and all those pieces fit it would be as if you i mean you can't imagine a, a computer i suppose being made over the course of a thousand years and it all comes out working it's just how is that right. possible it's only possible by the divine intervention Right. So with miracles, back to our episode that we had with, with Father Palco talking about miracles, we did spend some time looking at, you know, the burden of proof for us, you know, in, in discussing apologetics and saying, yes, miracles are possible. Yes, miracles have no other uh, logical explanation. We spent some time looking at, could miracles be done by human intervention Maybe someone is just really smart or sleight of hand or something like that. Or could it be possible that these miracles happen from the devil or demons? Um, so I suppose we would need to look at those same two objections with prophecies. Is someone saying them because they are just very smart and they have some knowledge? Or is someone maybe under the influence of a devil or demon or possession making these prophecies? And what would we say to those, Father? So I think your um, your acid test, if you like, uh, to determine um, whether it's from God and not chance or human foreknowledge, uh, are that the event, I guess you have a, a couple of possibilities there, but first, for example, that it depends exclusively on God's free will. And there's no amount of guessing, even diabolical speculation that could simply land upon God's free will. He, he does what he, he wants. He has a, a million upon million possibilities. And so uh, such things cannot be foreseen by chance. Uh, then after that, you could have events which depend uh, on a series of free human actions. And so the, the further you get away from the, uh, of the prediction from the event and the more um, possibilities could alter that event. Well, of course, the possibilities of all, uh, uh, of simply foreseeing that by a, a guess, it diminish diminishes exponentially by just as with each passing uh, moment. It, uh, it would simply become, you could say, uh, humanly or even angelically impossible remembering that the the angels themselves uh whether blessed or fallen they remain creatures they do not have uh, uh an infinite intellectual power they they simply have to work with the powers given them and if you have this um exponential uh, growth of possibilities 
then that again, so to be able to predict something uh, based upon a series of free human actions with uh, definitive certainty is going to be a mark of uh, God's inter uh, intervention. And um, events which depend upon a series of, uh, I might say, natural causes, but whose link is unknown. And that we would certainly see the angels have an advantage over us because they would see those links more clearly. But still, that uh, a storm should uh, arrive uh, in a certain year, a plague on a certain day. And so if, uh, you know, when uh, Joseph predicts seven years in advance, the seven years of famine, that's, well, um, again, already that's, that's so far distant and he's predicting it with certainty, not possibility. Uh, this is from God. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, so can we speak a little bit more about, you said there's that kind of advantage that, that angels would have, whether, whether fallen or, or you know, angels mm -hmm. as we understand them. Um, they have great intelligence. They have a lot of ability to kind of piece things together. So how, couldn't we say that some of the prophecies could have come from them as well? Mm -hmm. Uh, they would have certainly a, a great ability to deceive, always presupposing that nothing they can do um, is ever without the divine permission, so they would never be allowed to go further uh, than God allowed. But just reiterating that they, um, their intelligence is angelic, but it's still created. And so the difference there with the angels is they do have years of experience we could uh, we could say um but also they they don't plod from one point to another in their understanding in in their understanding of an idea or of a truth they immediately see all the the consequences and possibilities that flow from that so um seeing original sin in the soul for example they know the the weaknesses that um, that are necessarily there, whether those they have come to fruition or not. They know the machine they're working with and how to exploit it. And the same thing, they look at some event in nature, understanding the event. They don't have to plod through it. They simply see all the possibilities in an instant and can calculate uh, what um, what is the most likely possibility. They are, if in a certain sense, I suppose we could compare it to a supercomputer uh, playing chess. It, whereas the the actual player would have to work through the different possibilities, uh, the angel simply sees it by looking at the board right now, and so they will have that ad ad advantage. But again, there are some things which, um, if the divine chess player is allowed at any time to add three queens to the board. He may or he may not. There's simply no way that the the uh, diabolical intelligence can uh, foresee that. Right. I, I like your analogy. I was going to try to make the analogy of you know maybe the demon wouldn't know that there's the window open and a gust of wind is going to blow the whole board over. But your analogy is better. <laughs> but either way, there's some unforeseen event that even with that intelligence, uh, a demon or a human, there's no way they could know that ahead of time. Exactly. And we would say that they're really, when it comes to the, um, 
free will being involved. Uh, uh, um, absolutely that of God, but even human freedom, it, it really is a true freedom and the the devil cannot foresee that with certainty and the further the the more succession of events you have or a series of free acts the more impossible it becomes for him to predict such a thing with certainty that's fascinating um all right so moving on to starting to dive into the prophecies themselves in the old testament um i guess the basic question to ask before we kind of get started on the specifics is are there prophecies in the Old Testament? Can we, you know, all of the criteria that we've laid out here in these, you know, last 20 minutes or so, are the, are there those things in the Old Testament? Uh, there are indeed. And I think the, the reason it's important to do that um, preliminary uh, step and, and lay out these ideas is because we have um, various groups of people, I think, uh, especially of the, the rationalists. So, um, rationalists claim this name as uh, you know, making reason the measure of all things, and uh, you know they won't take anything for granted. Uh, but really, when it comes to uh, to it, they they limit all knowledge to what is um, uh, comes through, if you like the the, the natural faculty, and is is can be comprehended and uh, yes, entirely comprehended by the, the natural faculty. And so it is uh, an implicit and then quickly an explicit denial of the mere possibility of the supernatural. So it's saying, um, I can only trust my reason. And from that, I simply make this dogmatic uh, statement, if you like, I take this dogmatic position that there can never be anything beyond my reason, as if someone who is, well, I'm used to seeing everything in the sunlight, therefore there simply cannot be any other kind of light as well. But what if someone tells you there is? And to, to make that kind of statement of faith, it, it really is that it's, it's irrational, and that is what um, rationalists do. And... Um, when we, uh, so it's basically a materialistic approach. It's a rationalist approach. It's an a priori, so in principle denial of the very possibility of revelation of a God that could predict the future, that he could uh, communicate this future to his servants. And so they try to read the whole of um, the Old Testament and the whole of history as if these things were not happening and coming up with sometimes the very ab absurd and uh, arguments against it simply because it's a, it's an in principle uh, position the difficulty with that is that uh, the whole history of the jewish people becomes uh, incomprehensible without accepting the the very concrete fact that uh, they lived looking forward to the coming savior to a coming messiah and the the rationalists the the, the jews the um the catholics it's true that they will all live so i should clarify that 
it's true that they will all admit that the Jews received this notion from the Old Testament books. So they'll say, yes, they understood these things as, um, as prophecies. So they will, you might say, everyone is willing to admit that, that they accepted this text as the prophecy, as a prophecy of a coming Messiah. Uh, the difficulty with the, the rationalists is they reduce that to, again, simply a speculation and or to uh, someone trying to ride the, the current uh, of popularity, whatever it is. And it simply doesn't uh, synchronize with what we know of the prophets themselves, with what we know of the, the history of the people who held to this belief, not only when their, uh, the, the people was doing well, but when they were in abject subject, subjection to their um, foreign powers, when they were led off to captivity, and then... Um, you know, trusting the the men that were uh, uh, castigating them for their immoral lives or for idolatry. So you you have this this steady theme that exists in whatever circumstances, and that's not the same. And as for example, rationalists, atheists, materialists often try to uh, to say it is with your pagan soothsayers, who again have no concern whatever for the morality of the people. They are not really all that interested in whether the people is virtuous or, or not. Uh, they couch their, uh, their prophecies in these very ambivalent uh, terms and ex expressions. And so we're to believe that the prophets are really no different than such men. And then we see them fighting tooth and nail against idolatry, against um, uh, 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 sorry, um, polytheism, uh, against the mm -hmm. immoralities of the, of the people. And then these same prophets were willing to, to die for the, the honor of God and the, the laws of God. Apparently, we are told, had absolutely no qualms about making up stories just to gain some popularity, to gain some attention, had no interest in the truth at all. So there's there's simply something there that's not making sense. And it's basically brushed over, and you get a sense that just that um, uh, that that shot in that dark, the 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 general sweeping accusation, well, we know there are deceivers out there, therefore these men were among them, even though the the results, the fruits of it, uh, are not at all the, the same. Right. And it's it's sort of in the same way that the 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 whole story of the New Testament and the story of you know the, the life of our Lord doesn't make any sense without the miracles. Exactly. In the same way that the life of the Old Testament doesn't make sense without the prophecies. Right. If if you don't see that the the Jews really had this um, this conviction um, and a conviction that uh, of waiting for the Messiah and a conviction that didn't coincide, as we'll see um, with uh, uh, many of these prophecies, with their actual state of of life, um, with the actual state of their society, that, for example, this very nationalistic people. Um, who uh, 
whose contact with the, the world around them was one of, well, that is the world of idolatry, that is the world of uh, legal impurities, and I keep myself detached from them, that they had the sense that their religion would be the religion of all nations. And they held to this even when they themselves are slaves uh, in exile from their own promised land. And the conviction never wavers. And so to say that this is just, again, that the spirit of the age, it's exactly contrary to the spirit of the age. And when you have that unwavering uh, hope, yes, we'd, we'd say there has to be an adequate cause. You have an effect. Well, you need a, a cause that can produce that effect. Mm -hmm. We've talked a couple times already about the, uh, the idea that some of these prophecies are difficult to understand. Uh, and I would presume even more so for the people at the time who were reading these without the light of understanding the incarnation, because it hadn't happened yet. Um, how are they seeing the idea of the Messiah by reading these prophecies? They must have been, a lot of them, very confused. I think yes, um, and we have evidence of that. So they... Uh, the three elements you might say that really come out the, uh, of the the threefold function of the Messiah would be very difficult before the event uh, for someone to uh, determine. So there, uh, the Messiah was to play a political role. He was to restore the uh, the kingdom of David and to bring four nations. Uh, into subjection. Uh, the Messiah was to play a religious role. Uh, he would be like David, a king and a prophet, and he would be the greatest of the, the prophets to the, to the point that uh, you remember St. John the Baptist uh, is asked and they're speaking because they have this, um, this prophecy, are you the prophet? the prophet that is to come, the one that it was to be the, the equivalent and actually greater than Moses because he would uh, write a new covenant for them. And then there was, uh, if that weren't already difficult enough, the whole eschatological um, element and function of the, the Messiah, that he would live forever. His kingdom would be one of eternal glory. Uh, he would... Um, well, the dead would be be raised, and he would come and rule with his his saints. And you had these again continually the the that counterbalance, which left uh, some Jews speculating, uh, for example, that there were even two messiahs. So one was the mm. uh, son of Joseph. And the other was the son of David. So the son of Joseph, I can um, uh, make reference to this this text, uh, text of Zacharias. And both of these texts that I read, they're both from the same prophet. So it's not as if, okay, well, this prophet is contradicting uh, another one. It's really the okay. same prophet is saying the same thing and bringing these two elements to, together. Uh, but so in Zacharias chapter 9, we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Sion. Shout for joy, 
O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, thy king will come to thee, the just and savior. He is poor and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And there's, okay, well, he's a humble king. He's, he's coming into the uh, Jerusalem in all humility. Um, uh, and then, well, it says, I will destroy the chariot out of Ephraim, but we don't have the sense of the, the war. It's just that there won't be these, these elements of war because a bit later on, and he shall speak peace to the Gentiles and his power shall be from sea to sea and from the rivers, even to the end of the earth. So there you have the humble king and the peaceful resolution with the Gentiles. And then a few chapters later, behold, the days of the Lord shall come. And what are these days? And thy spoils, Jerusalem, shall be divided in the midst of thee. And I will gather all nations to Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken. And then you get the sense of the divide, those that are lost and those that are saved. Then the Lord shall go forth and shall fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And again, it continues further. And finally, and the Lord my God shall come and all the saints with him. And so there we have really, again, back to the glorious reign of, of uh, the, the Messiah. So this is the, if you like, the son of David, the, the conquering king. And then we have, as they called him, the, the son of Joseph, the humble king, the, the bringer of peace. Again, a, another prophet mentioning how he's born in Bethlehem. Uh, then on the other side, we have Daniel saying he shall arrive, uh, arrive in the clouds of heaven. So there, there really was a sense of you, you get then some established this tradition that there um, would be two messiahs. And another Jewish, tr Jewish tradition held that, well, it would actually be conditioned upon the fidelity of the people. So if the people uh. will be righteous, the Messiah will come in the clouds of heaven. If they will not be righteous, he will come as a poor man riding upon an ass. So interesting. It, it is fascinating. Uh, this this idea of um, not saying these things were not messianic prophecies. That's difficult to understand. I'll just deny it. It's no, these things are true. How can they be resolved? And uh we find that then they are resolved in the most extraordinary way um, with the coming of, of Christ. And it seems to me as, as I was trying to re reflect on an image of that, that we're accustomed, you know, the, the, to see that the beauty of the prism, that you, you shine a light into it and you have that myriad of colors that comes out. In the case of the Messianic prophecies, it's as if you had this myriad of colors all dealing with the Messiah and with no knowledge of the prism, how could this ever be anything sure. but a, you know, a, a wonder of different colors. And then it go, all those colors from their different centuries, their different aspects or different angles go into that prism, which is Christ. And they come out as one coherent beam of divine truth and of the divine word really of <laughs> the incarnate god right uh but w before that prism is there you just see all these colors which you under you can't understand at all how they could merge into one yeah it is fascinating i, I think i was mentioning this with father Ruder on the first old testament episode we did you know it's it's 
easy, quote unquote, easy for us to understand, because again, we have the hindsight, we have the knowledge of the incarnation, uh, we have the church teaching kind of guiding us on, here's what this actually meant, and here's how it came true. Um, but again, before that point, how would you, you know, it's, it's difficult for us to understand how someone in the Old Testament would understand them, much less make the prophecy. How would you, it would be foolish for someone to even try to make these prophecies that all seem to kind of contradict each other. That seems to, you know, add even more credence to the idea that these prophecies are from God because what person in his right mind would even try to make them? Uh, for, for sure. Uh, I think you, you, um, uh, you know, hit the nail on the head, especially for the, the character of the, the prophets of the, the men we're dealing with, uh, can you imagine that one you know, man of, of God is is reading the the Psalms and it talking about the the, the, the glorious uh, king that will you know, laugh his enemies to scorn in, in Psalm two and he says, Well actually I'm going to talk about how he's going to suffer and die. Is how could this be anything <laughs> by human motive, anything but blasphemy? But you're just reading in the Psalms right. how he's going to to crush uh, his enemies, and now you're talking on your own authority that he's going to suffer wretchedly, and it's just humanly that is it's just inconceivable. That's so that as, as you say that you should have these these different lights coming in, and that anyone who was uh, demonstrably such holy men, such men of God should make bold to say these things. It is itself yet another proof that they are divine. Yeah. Right. And you've mentioned this a little bit before, but, but to try to lump these men, these prophets who again, demonstrably holy men to try to lump them in with the pagan soothsayers, that just doesn't add up either. Uh, correct. And I think, uh, we're, all too accustomed to, uh, I think, in our day to to see those kind of sweeping arguments, those sweeping generalizations that, uh, well, if uh, I know there's liars out there, so anyone who I disagree with, I can just say, well, you're you're probably uh, lying. I know there's religious fanatics out there, and so I will dismiss any kind of religious obligation as fanaticism. I know there are hypocrites out there, so I will say anyone that appears holy is a hypocrite. That it's it's really the um, the shallowest of arguments because it's not based upon any argument. It's based upon this knowledge of human uh, weakness or a sense of human weakness, and then arbitrarily saying, "and I'm going to apply it to this person or to these people," um, as if just the fact that I know that it does rain. So in that case, it is raining over in this town. Well, no, just because it can rain there, you can't simply say with certainty um, without any further uh, investigation that it is, is raining. You can't say that because there are some religious fanatics, this person who shows none of the elements of a religious fanatic, none of the uh, elements of the egotism, the imbalance, that he, he is a religious fanatic. It's, it's arbitrary and unjust. Yeah. Um, and again, we've talked about how there's, there's really not a human explanation as to how any of this, uh, any of these prophecies could have come about, but there was one in, in the notes that you passed along to me ahead of time. There was, 
one in particular that I'd love for you to expand on a little bit, Father. And you said um, the idea that the Jewish religion would spread throughout the world, that that's in and of itself sort of a proof of, of the prophecies. Uh, can you explain what you mean by that? Well, the, um, yes, the, the Jews were, their great claim, you might say, to, to privilege, um, throughout the, the centuries was their fidelity to, to God. And of course, that's not to say that they did not have times of infidelity where they were punished for it, but um, by and large, they they returned uh, uh, to that practice of the faith and they uh, preserved it. And their claim to fame was not in their cultural um, education, in the glory of their civilization, in their um, military accomplishments. They did have, of course, um, certain um, pockets of, of great glory, Solomon, the, the Maccabees, but this did not define the, the people. Much more were their, um, their hardships, their, uh, their suffering, um, their being conquered and uh, taken into exile. And um, how is it then that this this people that was so often in subjection um, would see that, and who had this very nationalistic sense in order to preserve their religion, should see its fulfillment in a way that was, you might say, very contrary to their natural instincts? And I think that comes out very much in a certain element at the time of our Lord, of the the Pharisees, uh, that they didn't want to lose the privilege of their their nation, that that they their the niche that they had, and the idea that the the Gentiles would be received in freely without observing national rights, it was very foreign to them, and so they they preserved the ideas of the uh, the prophecy, which without fully understanding the the sense and yet they held again through recognizing these various texts as messianic um they held that it was so and an added note to that is that you don't have for the last what five um maybe four centuries you don't have any more prophets in israel before the time of christ for the four centuries uh, close to five centuries before Christ, you you don't have any more prophets. You don't have, if you like, huh. the um, the nourishing of this of this belief. If that's what we're supposed to believe from a rationalistic standpoint, that it's just kind of oil on the fire and trying to rile people up. So you didn't have these divine messengers um, raised up to to nourish that idea, and yet the idea did not waver. This is what um, uh, we are waiting for. There is a Messiah uh, coming, and he will be one to rule the nations. And if you have at times of their history where that becomes something of a, of a more popular aspect because of their own hardships, well, yes, that's a, um, uh, 
perhaps a a natural um, a natural what what would one say um, expression a natural hope. Well, this is what I'm suffering from, um, so this would be a, a resolution to it. But it's it's much more than that because it is constant and it's not. Um, uh, defeated by setback it's not overcome by uh by setback and i don't think this could possibly humanly be satisfied by mere hazy predictions vague um you know uh motivations of you know well it will get better sometime or uh yeah well one day we'll get them back the, the messianic prophecies aren't aren't like that. They're very definitive. Right. Um, if if not completely understood, yet what is there is something solid, and that is why the people had such conviction that they were true and could trust them. It's not like a fortune cookie where you could read it any number of of infinite ways, and then oh look, it came true. Exactly. Well, that's just because it's a really vague statement. <laughs> right. Um, that's it. So as we look more at the, at the purpose or, or, or kind of how these messianic prophecies are, I guess, written, inspired, given, um, I guess, whatever the proper term is, um, at first, at the very beginning, so we, we were talking about it kind of at the very end of the messianic prophecies that ended about four or 500 BC. As we get at the very, as we look at the very beginning, um, they aren't very clear in the beginning. I mean, they aren't very clear to begin with because they take a lot of interpretation, but at the beginning, they, they are definitely not very clear is that correct i think you could they're not comprehensive but they okay uh, they do give a certain indication which is yes uh clarified over time so that's that's fair enough um and again i think we should understand that god wanted that progressive development and if someone if we take this apologetically well i don't know that god revealed that these at least one should admit that there's nothing unreasonable that if God is revealing these things, um, that he should want it to be progressively developed, to um, go by stages, to uh, to have a certain growth in that light. Because again, he's not um, trying to lay out a, a game plan, which itself would risk a great artificiality uh, perhaps we can come to that later, but it can often be the complaint, well, this prophecy was fulfilled simply because someone artificially tried to fulfill it. As well, if you say that this is to be done, and then I go and do that precisely for that reason, is that really prophetic? Because it's, sure. again, so detailed that you have that sense that, well, I'll do it just for that sake. Um, and you might also have had the danger of people thinking this was somehow uh, uh, an attack upon their free will. And if I don't, um, uh, so the, almost a prompting to do the opposite and so to endanger their soul simply to, to, to verify in their own mind that their will was truly free. So coming back then to this this beautiful order that God uh, avoids such um, perils by this progressive development. And then you do get at the, the, the dawn of time. So after the first fall 
of uh, Adam and Eve, just that uh, promise that yes, a, a Messiah will will come. The uh, the protoevangelium, so the uh, you know the the promise that uh, God will put enmity between the, the the devil and the woman, and he shall lie in wait for her heel, and she shall crush his head and crush him through her seed. So first you have um, that, then you have the if you like the. Um, successive manifestations. Um, so we've seen that all of this is possible. We've seen that it makes logical sense that it could take place. It makes sense that the prophets are not charlatans. They're not. They're not like the old. Uh, they're not like the sibyls, like the pagan soothsayers. Um, can we start to look at some of the prophecies themselves and start to kind of get into the order of some of the events, Father? Yes. Um, so we uh, did just uh, touch quickly uh, upon the protoevangelium. evangelium I will put enmities between thee and the woman. Um, and so that being the, uh, the first uh, is very striking. It shows that there will be this, um, this triumph over uh, the enemy of man. It will be a definitive uh, triumph. The enemy will be crushed. And uh, already right there that uh, he will be wounded. Uh, the Messiah will be wounded in that battle. Okay, thou shalt lie in wait uh, for his heel. Her heel, his heel, that is in fact um, secondary because Our Lady crushes uh, the, the devil through her son. And also you have already listed there this very fitting expression um, between thy seed and her seed, so the seed of the woman. And since the Messiah, which is not known at this time, at this first uh, uh, revelation of the Messiah, that it would be God himself, uh, there could be simply mm -hmm. a savior that would come who himself would be a man and a great ruler. Uh, yet, one could see already how fitting that there's this implication that there will not be a human father. And so you have this extraordinary expression, it will be the seed of the woman. And so, um, and yet truly man, not an angel, and yet no human father. Uh, so that's quite, quite striking. And then um, God continues to uh, give a, a few more over the years, uh, further specifications of um, where he would uh, come from or where uh, he would at what the time and first the, the nation and then the family. So you have in the, the blessing of Sem by Noah that Sem will be, if I can find that, um, blessed in a particular way by the presence of the Lord. Um, blessed be the Lord, uh, the God of Sem. Let Canaan be his slave. May God expand Japheth. Let him dwell in the tents of Sem. So the 
blessing um, of Japheth is that he grow, but his special blessing will be that he's in the tents of Sem because Sem has this special connection to um, Yahweh, to, to God. So you have already from the time of Noah, three children, three sons, and we specify uh, which of those the Messiah would come from. And then the promises made to Abraham, uh, this assurance to Abraham that in his descendants, the uh, nations of the world would be blessed. And this, again, an extraordinary time when um, first he has uh, uh, no children and then uh, no only uh, one and that his prosperity should be as great as the uh, the sand by the seashore. Uh, and that promise is renewed to each of the uh, the the children and uh, so to Isaac to Jacob even though again with with Jacob you have with the one who's not the firstborn so it's not simply the natural okay well we'll go follow a hierarchy here um, and then you have revealed to 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 Jacob of all his sons uh, that again to which son it will uh, fall upon and it will be uh to the the children of Judah, uh, so the scepter shall not be taken away from Judah uh, till he that is uh, promised shall come. And just as a side note, so it is the uh, Jewish tradition that um, when the people were were leaving Egypt, um, called uh, uh, led by Moses out of captivity. It was the uh, the house of uh, Judah that stood out particularly at the the Red Sea. So mm. the the peoples uh, the tribes marched in order, and I should go back and and double check that order. Uh, but I think first you had uh, perhaps it was uh, Manassas. And when they came to the parted sea, it was such an overwhelming, terrifying sight to see these walls of, of of water, and they're supposed to go through the midst that they they wouldn't walk through, and so they just had to step to the side. And then the the next tribe came up, and I think the third tribe was the tribe of Levi, and there you even have the priestly caste, and they would not walk through. And you have the Egyptian army, you know, waiting to kill them from behind, bearing down on them. It, it's just yeah. such an overwhelming sight. And then Judah came up. And said we're going and when judah went yeah. through then all the 12 tribes uh the other uh tribes followed them and from that moment that uh the tribe of judah always had this if you like um special place uh among the, the tribes so you already have that uh that promise made far earlier and then you have in a completely different way this this rise to, to power, it's something completely disconnected of why they should have such a privileged place among the uh, the people. And uh, and they held it uh, till that, that time. And we might come as well, uh, they, they weren't the kings, were they? So uh, that particular prophecy can be treated more uh, at depth as to why we say the scepter shall not be taken um, uh, from Judah, 
Yeah, so the, the full quote there, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs. To him shall be the obedience of nations. And so, uh, yes, the, the Messiah likewise will um, take up that, that scepter and will be of the house of Judah. And then um, many years later, you have it revealed to King David by the um, prophet Nathan that it will be of the family of David that the Messiah will come. So I will raise up thy so seed after thee. Sorry? No, go ahead. Sorry. Okay. I will raise up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom forever. And again, once by my holiness have I sworn I will not be false to David. His posterity shall continue forever, and his throne shall be like the sun before me. So we have then over time, uh, again, it's uh, there's nothing, as we mentioned at the very beginning, is, is contrary to the, the prophecies of the, the Sibyls. There's nothing obscure in that amount of what is, is revealed. So it's incomplete, but it's not equivocal. The Messiah will be of this people. It will be of this nation. It will be of this tribe. It will be of this family. And as soon as with each successive revelation, you are excluding a lot of possibilities. You're really narrowing down the window you have to work with. And if you don't have that divine intelligence, you're making a serious risk by narrowing that window in that way. Yeah, uh, that's fascinating. I had never considered all those all those specific promises being a prophecy, but of course they were. I just never thought about it in that right. way. Um, um, so I guess then we can look at some of the prophecies about our Lord. We've been seeing the prophecies about his genealogy, about what family, tribe, et cetera, he's going to be coming from. But um, there were many prophecies about what the character of this Messiah's life would be like. And that I, I find, Andrew, one of the, the most daunting aspects of uh, this, uh, this conversation and almost one of the difficulties apologetically with this topic. It's because if you have a, a few things that you can present and then you can delve into them and say, oh, okay, well, yeah, that seems solid. And then this seems solid. But the, the mere number of, of prophecies is almost overwhelming. So you think, well, yeah. by the time you list them all, you're kind of, yeah, okay, I get it, I get it. And yet just by listing them, you think, oh, well, I haven't really delved into that. So is that, and yet, um, as I say, it's one of those things that to, to memorize, you just think, well, how could I memorize all these things? And yet when we see how, how detailed uh, the, this prevision of what our Lord uh, will, who he will be, what he will be like, the things that will happen to him, uh, his, his function, his role, it really is extraordinary. And I think that, that comes back to this idea of all those colors of light um, hitting that prism and turning into one because we we just have such an extraordinary number of things to uh, to say. 
So if I can just um, give something of that list, uh, sure, it is um, told us that he will have a forerunner, um, and uh, as also of note, there it gives us a, a time frame. Um, Uh, let's see if I've uh, lost my uh, place. Um, yes, so we're familiar with the first part of it. So let's uh, also consider the second aspect of this um, prophecy. Behold, this is from um, uh, Malachias. Behold, I send my angel and he shall prepare the way before my face. And presently, of course, this is, uh, we know John, uh, after the fact, John the Baptist coming before uh, Jesus Christ. And presently, the Lord whom you seek and the angel of the testament whom you desire shall come to his temple. So not only does this tell us that our Lord Jesus Christ will have a forerunner, uh, but that he will come at the time when the temple still exists. So once the temple is destroyed, your your window for awaiting a Messiah is, is gone because one of the um, the messianic prophecies says that he will be in his temple so wow. that is again huge for those that would say that the jewish religion is simply our elder brothers in the in the faith uh, saint paul says we are the true israelites we have taken um that that testament and seen that it was fulfilled by jesus christ uh hmm. the place where he is born uh he is born in bethlehem that he should be born of a virgin mother. That this, as we already mentioned, that contrast, that this um, king that is expressed to be glorious uh, uh, and triumphant and a, uh, a commander in battle will be meek and merciful. I think also very striking, this one from um, Isaiah, might say Galilee was not really considered uh, a place of a special honor. Nazareth, you know, the, uh, can anything good come from Nazareth was uh, St. Philip's question. Uh, but the whole land of Galilee was not well reputed. And we find again that the object of a special aspect of the messianic um, prophecies. So in the former time, he afflicted the land of Zabalon and the land of Jordan Galilee of the Gentiles, it was an afflicted area. The people that walked in darkness, that is the people of Galilee, uh, the people that walked in darkness, behold the great light, and upon them that dwell in a land of gloom, a light shines. And you get the sense that the Galilee will, in a special way, profit from the light of the gospel. And again, it's exactly uh, what happens. Um, wow. that this Messiah will perform miracles, that he will enter the uh, the city uh, humbly riding upon an ass. Um, and we know that when he did so, it was at that very moment that he was proclaimed um, uh, as as a king. Uh, Hosanna to, uh, to God in the highest. Um, this, this praise that this is the Messiah, he's the one sent by God. 
And so we have that again on on one side. We've seen how how difficult it was for the the Jews to to reconcile uh, these things, because then when we come to the uh, the prophecies of our our Lord's Passion, we're again stunned by how vivid they they are. It is uh, Zacharias, so again, I think fifth or fourth century before our Lord who prophesies the exact amount that our Lord will be betrayed for. It's That's not really something that you want to, how, how is the inflation going to affect this? Is silver going to be worth the same? <laughs> as What's the standard uh, betrayal rate? It's just <laughs> who, who would throw in um, a, a prophecy of that kind 400 years before the event? Okay, so that he will be betrayed for 30 pieces of, of silver. And I think what we also note in these things, um, not all, they are, uh, again, the question of our Lord coming into Jerusalem on an ass, if we departed from his whole character of nobility, of uprightness, that is one of those things where it was very specifically said, we could imagine that the charlatan would simply, okay, well, this is something I have to do to fulfill this part of the prophecy. But unhappily for the rationalists and the agnostics, a large part, if not the the far the greater majority of prophecies are rather brought to their fulfillment by enemies of our Lord. It's not this right. kind of uh, team uh, team Catholicism which is bringing these things about. It is really the the enemies of our Lord that through their hatred, through their resent uh, rejection, of his messianic uh, role are precisely the ones bringing that those messianic prophecies to fulfillment. Uh, that he should be flogged and spit upon was foretold. That he should be condemned like a criminal, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a ewe that is dumb before its shears. He shall have poured out his soul to death and been numbered with the rebellious. Daniel, uh, the prophet Daniel says that the Christ shall be slain. And again, yet another uh, example of the the uh, Jews not understanding at the time, because when our Lord foretold his own death, that he would be lifted up, they said, well, how can this be? Because we've heard that the Christ will live forever. So there you have that admission that um, it's very difficult to reconcile these things. And yet we see a perfect reconciliation in our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that his hands and feet should be pierced. Uh, and again, this is from the, uh, the, the Psalm of, of David, and one wonders that, well, you didn't have the, the Roman form of, of crucifixion being the evident, you know, uh, manner of torture and of execution of the day in which he's writing. So the fact that uh, you predict the manner of death for an empire that has not yet come into power, it's extraordinary. Uh, that his garments should be uh, divided, that he should be given gall to, to drink, um, that he will be stabbed or that he will be pierced. Okay, so um, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Again, that's Zacharias, uh, 400, 500 years before our, our Lord's coming. And that again 
is striking because uh, it is something fulfilled, if you like, by the resentment of the Pharisees. You uh, will remember that when our Lord is dying upon the cross, it is the Pharisees that send to Pilate and saying, we don't want these bodies up there on the uh, on the cross on the Sabbath day. Now, whether that was simply because we don't want them up there on the Sabbath day, or as I know one priest speculated, they were thinking to themselves, well, not a bone of his body shall you break, so we'll make sure his knees get broken and we will have the the soldiers do that, you know, because that's how they they made sure they were they would die uh, quickly. And yet they come to our Lord and they find that he's already dead. So maybe they weren't aware of the prophecy at the time. They were too busy with their own um, spirit right. of hate. Or maybe they looked in horror as they saw the Roman centurion pierce him through. And you know, there we are looking upon him whom we've pierced. So again, it's a it's right. a it's a prophecy that comes true from the very rejection of the messianic prophecy or from the rejection of Christ as the Messiah, the prophecy that shows that he is the Messiah is simply solidified and all the more. So I think when we see the things um, like that happening, this idea that, no, these are just uh, lucky guesses or um, you know, maybe these things are preserved and others weren't. We simply don't find that. These are the, the sacred texts of the, the Jews that once they were written, they entered into their, um, it wasn't a closed canon, but they were received into the canon of their scriptures as they had it. And these things were not altered. It's um, uh, So it's, yeah, we're, we're overwhelmed with the number uh, and the evidence of the things that show us that our, our Lord is the fulfillment of um, all these messianic prophecies. And then finally, if I can add, the those that actually refer to the glory of his, his tomb, uh, again, very, very striking. Um, we have that uh, he shall give the ungodly for his burial and the rich for his death. Um, and then I have a commentator here who says, but when we... You know, we see that there are variations in the in the different versions. Uh, and so in quoting the Hebrew, they assigned his grave among the wicked, but in his death he is with the rich man. So one might take that spiritually, or one might also take that, well, actually, for those moments when he was buried, he was put into the, uh, uh, the tomb of uh, Joseph of Arimathea. Um, so, That's fascinating. Yeah. It's uh, it's like you said, you know, yeah. There might be an objection to, you know, Jesus knew about the prophecy about him riding into Jerusalem on an ass, and so he does that to purposefully, and obviously he does do it purposefully. But according to the rationalists, well, he did that purposely just to fulfill the prophecy. Okay, so then did he give himself up for thirty pieces of silver? Did he had himself put to death, have himself stabbed, pierced hands and feet, like? you're really going to make that argument fine. Then we need to make that argument about all the other prophecies too. And that's where it really starts to fall apart. Right. Yeah. There, there's no, um, I think human, uh, pre prevision here, pre, uh, precognizance that could, that could take in all those, uh, 
all those possibilities because really it is as we said with the um and, and stress that uh the nature of true prophecy is that uh when it deals with free will the free will of god or the free will of men even the angelic mind can't see uh distinctly and definitely what all those possibilities could be because one free choice then has consequences for the free choice that follows it and yeah. uh yeah so we're, we're clearly dealing uh we're undoubtedly dealing with a divine intervention these these truths coming before the fact can only come from god and to yeah. to take any other position is to really bury oneself in absurdity and uh in fact that is what uh, the commentators say when one goes through this uh that you will have those that attack the idea of uh these being true um prophecies these being truly divine uh and criticisms of why this doesn't seem to um, to fit the bill in in this particular case, but they can't provide any other really coherent expression of what those things would then mean or uh, how they they might be fulfilled. Except again, going back to this idea that well, it was all just kind of um, taught. Uh, charlatanism and deception and then again that not agreeing at all with the character of the prophets it's not at all agreeing with the conviction that they had or of the whole people that followed this for generation this this wasn't a um kind of a yeah a, a fanatical group that uh you know rose for 15 years um and then was declared nuts no, we're talking about a people for a millennium and more that you know accepted this as as true. They uh, and we often know that when pressed in these hardships, uh, it was precisely because they had the uh, divine um, evidence of the miracles as well that showed them no really god is on our side and this is the position we have to hold and when we don't hold it we get uh, punished for it so there were all those things as well but to say that these the people held to uh to these things without any real motive to hold to them even when it wasn't convenient for them or humanly speaking profitable to them to hold them again it's just it's so contrary to human psychology uh and to human experience that you're really dealing with the a counter faith and that counter faith is that i simply refuse to believe that god could intervene in the world i simply refuse right. to believe that he would he can or would um share any truth with us it, it is a counter faith yeah well father this has been fascinating to look through and thank you so much for taking the time to to put all this together i like you said there's a lot uh, especially when we start to get into the the prophecies of our Lord Himself, um, probably some that we didn't even get to, but they're just the the preponderance of evidence is is just all there, and you put it all together, and it makes such a compelling case. Um, add that into the miracles, add that into all the other things That's that we've right. been talking about, and yeah, it's uh, it's it's really amazing. 
Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on, Andrew. It's been my pleasure to, to have this conversation with you. And uh, you as well. Till next time, then. And I think it looks like, yeah, it looks like we uh, we maybe have you on uh, another time. So um, we'll we'll chat with you then. But thanks again so much for your time. Okay, thank you. God bless you. All right, you too. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Apologetic Series on the SSPX podcast and on our YouTube page. Please consider subscribing to the YouTube account and the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are found. And please consider leaving a rating or a review on this podcast. This will help to make sure more people can find this podcast and discover the beauty and the truth of traditional Catholicism. Until next time, thank you for joining us, and God bless you.